Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, our text will be verses 7 to 11. We are here in those wonderful chapters of the Gospel of John in which Jesus is having these private conversations with his disciples. It's really here that you see a lot of the heart of Christ put on display, the great love that he has for his disciples. Judas has already left the room. He's already went out into the night to conspire with the religious leaders. We remember that it was under Jesus's command to him that he go. Jesus said, what you do quickly, or what you do, do quickly. And what does Judas do? After being possessed by Satan, he goes out and does the very thing that his Lord had commanded of him. Jesus begins to express to his disciples his love for them, what is getting ready to occur. He's getting ready to depart. He says, where I go, you cannot come. We talked about, though, how Jesus added in those words to his disciples that he did not say to the religious leaders earlier in the Gospel of John. As he said to them, where I go, you cannot come. You will die in your sins. Except this time he tells his disciples and and assuring them that they will be with him because he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. He is comforting their hearts because they are upset, they're distraught that he is leaving. He's announcing his departure. There's a number of reasons why we had talked about last week that really sets the the tone of all the things that Jesus is saying. We remember initially that the disciples are speaking amongst themselves as to who's the greatest. Then they have this great rebuke by our Lord in the fact of him rising up from the table, girding himself, and beginning washing their feet, the greatest among them, showing how we ought to be to one another rather than being who's the greatest. That in itself was a rebuke against them, against their attitudes. He announces that one of them is going to betray them. They don't know it's Judas, and so you still have that on their minds, perhaps, as the rest of this conversation is going. They hear about Peter getting ready to deny him three times, and so they know a great trial is coming. So their hearts are troubled. That's why Jesus says, as we went over last week, he says to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That is the answer for the troubled heart is to believe. Believe the the things that God has said, the promises of God, the continued presence of God, the great hope that we have in Christ. He assures them that where he's going, that they are able to come because he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. No one is going to be without. There's room for everyone. You know where I'm going, he says to them. Thomas says, we don't even know the destination of where you're going. How are we going to know the means how to get there? And Jesus announces to them, says that that sixth I am statement. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was demonstrating the exclusivity of the Christian faith. That there is only one way to get there, and that is only through him. That is only through his accomplished work. 
for there is no other way. The only way that God can be just and justify sinners is only through Christ because Christ carries out all the demands of the law of God perfectly and it is Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us through faith. So on the basis of Christ's work that we are privileged to come into the presence of God. Now Jesus is going to be speaking to the disciples now about his unity with the Father. He is going to say some very amazing truths when it comes to that. And you also see him once again setting straight uh, the disciples as far as their lack of understanding really of who he is. And in that we can see a number of different things. We can see first off that, that what we depend upon as far as our knowledge of God is not based within a sensory experience but in the very words of God. And that is so vital to understand that our authority and our understanding of God comes through the scripture and the scripture alone. That any experience of ours, unless it is grounded in scripture, is lacking. That it must be through the word of God because it's our knowledge of God that permeates the heart, that sets the affections and the emotions into play, and, and that's where our praise comes in. That's where our worship comes in. It deepens as our understanding of God deepens. But if we lack an understanding of God, we lack an understanding of the word of God, and we only base our Christianity on an experience, then we're really, this is is shallow Christianity. As Dr. Lawson had said before, it's our theology that produces our doxology. It's uh, it's sola scriptura, which produces soli deo gloria, scripture alone, which produces glory to God alone. It has to be that that we immerse ourselves within the scripture and be saturated with the scripture, be saturated with the, the, the word of God so that we understand God rightly, we understand Christ rightly, and we can appreciate even more so of who Christ himself claims to be and the importance of the life of Christ within our own, within our own walk with God. Because as the scriptures tell us in a number of places, he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the one who is in the bosom of the Father who explains him. Everything that we want to know about God, every question that we have about God is found in Christ. It is not found in anything else. If we look outside of the scripture in order to try to come up with an understanding of God, we're going to fail because as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, anything that man himself comes up with in order to understand God or to how, how to worship God or any of those things will always be lacking and always fail, always lead into error and, and, and heresy because man can't get past his own finite understanding of things. That's why we need God to speak to us in a kind of baby talk, a kind of lisping, as Calvin said, in order that we can understand something about him. And the fullest revelation of God to the entire world is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who explains him. He is the one that we look to with any questions that we have of what is God like, we look to Christ. Because Christ is the answer. So let's look at this passage together. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 14, verses 7 to 11. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the word of God. If you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Let's pray together. Father, we again come into your presence and we ask, Father, that the Spirit of God will move mightily within our hearts this morning, bringing about a greater knowledge and understanding of you, a greater affection for you. Father, grow our faith as we work our way through this passage. Let our eyes behold the majesty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it would be to your word that we look in order to understand you to understand you even more so through the life of Christ. Father, bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. There's some amazing things <clears throat> that Jesus says here. As far as explaining to them even more so of the unity that he has with God the Father. Of the, the, the necessity of looking to him to understand the Father. Because you cannot comprehend the Father without comprehending Jesus. At least as much as our minds can understand. That is one of the very first things that Jesus begins here. That comprehending him is comprehending the Father. After announcing that he is the only way to the Father, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And to know Christ is to know the Father. And this is the very thing that he is saying, the very nature that he put on display, his character, everything about him was explaining the Father to the entire world. Everything. And he, see, he, he makes that statement there that you have seen him. And how, how is it that that could be? He's going to go on to explain that further. But this word for see is very important because he's not saying to the disciples that you have actually seen a manifestation of the very presence of God or his being. But what he is saying is that they have been able to comprehend something about the Father because of Christ himself. In the Greek, there's a variety of words here that are used uh, for the word see. The one is uh, blepo. It's, it's actually see something. It's, it's like when John goes into the, the tomb and he sees the linen clothes there. Peter comes in. This is the different word. Peter comes in. He not only sees the linen clothes there, but he begins to wonder about it. He marvels at it, which is another Greek word that is sometimes translated see, which is thereo, which is where we get the word theorize. But then there's another word, which is hara'o, which is to see with comprehension. That's the word that Jesus is using here. You comprehend the Father when you comprehend him. If you had known me, 
you would have known my father. It's showing that intimacy of the two and the unity of the two. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. You have comprehended him because they have comprehended Christ. Not to the fullest extent, though, as we will see. There is a unity of being between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus can say these words. Because they are in agreement on everything. They are one in essence, they are one in substance, yet three persons. And yet they are in full agreement of everything. There is no disunity here. There is no disagreements here. The very thing that God says in the Old Testament is agreed upon by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The very nature of Christ is the nature of the Father. The very nature of Christ is the nature of the Holy Spirit as well. We wonder what the Holy Spirit is like. We look to Christ. So everything that Christ says, the very words that come out from the mouth of our Lord, every action that he did, the very attitude that he had, is showing the Father. It is showing us who the Father is. That was the great mission of Christ, aside from, of course, accomplishing redemption for those that the Father had given to him. It's to show the Father. What is God like? Well, what is Christ like? What is God pleased with? Well, what is Christ pleased with? These are the questions we, we, have, to, we have to answer. Is God compassionate to sinners? Was, was Christ compassionate to sinners? Can, can God, does God really care about what goes on in my life? Well, did Christ care about what went on in the lives of others? What is it that is displeasing to the Lord? Well, what was displeasing to Christ? Is God forgiving? Well, was Christ forgiving? And that's why when it comes to these questions, we're looking to Christ. Because everything that Christ said and did was not in opposition to the Father, it was not a greater mercy that we're seeing in Christ that the Father doesn't have. He is showing the great mercy and grace of the Father by everything that he does because he is the one explaining the Father. That's why I love this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It is based on one of the Puritan writings. But it goes through a number of these things, these characteristics of Christ, and it's putting on display for us what the Father is like. Because there's no difference in the two. The only difference in the two is that the second person of the Trinity condescended and laid aside his divine prerogatives, took the form of man, and became obedient. That's the difference. Only the second person of the Trinity became man. Does God really have power over the evil one? Did Christ have power over the evil one? Yes, he did. Does God really control all that there is within the universe and in creation? Did Christ? Christ is the one who speaks to the storm and everything goes calm. Christ is the one who isn't affected by the great waves on the sea. He's walking through them. He's walking on the sea. The demons are subject to him. Everything that Christ did was explaining to us, was expounding for us who the Father is. And in like manner, who the Spirit of God is. His character and his very nature put on display for the people of God to marvel at as we look to the life of Christ. That is, that is why it is so vital to understand Christ. Understand who he is, understand the things that he did, understand the things that he said. 
I mean, it is one thing to, to be amazed at all the amazing works that Christ did because that's going to come into play too because who else can do these things but God? But to listen to the very words of our Lord, the very actions that he did as far as interacting with, with sinners, that should give us a time of pause to consider those things and to see how gracious and merciful that he is and how gracious and merciful that he is to us. He is very forgiving because he was forgiving in the scripture here. You can go through many of these gospels and you can see that. You can see his great love that he has for others. You can see his great compassion that he has for others. Even compassion for those who do not believe in him. He didn't just have compassion on those who had true faith. He had compassion on those, even those that did not believe in him. They're like a sheep with no shepherd. The feeding of the 5,000, what was it that it was said of him? He had compassion on them. And these are the same ones that are going to come back the next day, and then he's going to rebuke them. You're not coming to me because of that. You're coming to me because you had your bellies filled. And yet he was compassionate anyway. There's a great kindness of the Lord that is seen there. And th those are the things that help us to understand even some of the, the intricacies of the very love of God. R.C. Sproul talked about the three types of love that God has. The love of, of benevolence and then the, the, the love of benevolence and then the love of complacency. The, the love of benevolence and the, the, the love of beneficence is his, his attitude towards mankind. He has a kindness. He has a kind attitude. And then the kind actions that he does even towards all mankind. And this is what we call God's common grace. There's a goodwill of God even toward the unbelieving. He allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. He allows the wicked to prosper. He allows the wicked to even have, have good lives, what we would consider to, to be good lives. That in itself is a kindness of God and a grace of God even to them. Then there's the love of complacency. Not to be taken as the complacent as what we understand it. But the love of complacency is the love that God has specifically for his own. It's that It goes back to that that Hebrew word of uh, hesed, that, that loving kindness, that covenant love, that loyal love that God has for his own. And you see all of those in, in the life of Christ. His kindness and his goodwill towards others who don't believe. And then that special love that he has for his own. Christ reveals the Father. Now, he says to his disciples... From now on you know him and have seen him. It, and it's very evident that they obviously don't understand as much as they should. Because Philip's going to say here, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And this really flies into the face of the idea of believing, or seeing is believing. That if I could just see something, if I could just see a manifestation of God, or if I could just see something, whatever... Then I can believe. And that's often what you hear as far as the charge of the unbelieving. Is that if God would just manifest himself, then I would believe. And even some of those that are closest to him, that's not true. Philip had been with Christ just as the rest of the disciples for three years, over three years, and still did not comprehend fully who he was. So seeing is not believing, as to what it is often said today. Philip is basically saying, okay, you're departing. 
you're leaving. Our hearts are troubled. Our hearts are saddened. But if we can see just some manifestation of the Father, it'll suffice. It'll be sufficient. Maybe he's thinking, I know, some kind of an appearance of God as he did in the Old Testament. Maybe, maybe a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Maybe he's thinking along that line. Maybe he's thinking of, of Moses saying, show me your glory. And the Lord hiding him in the cleft of the rock. And the Lord passing by and declaring his goodness, declaring his, his character to him. Maybe he's thinking that. Maybe he's thinking of Isaiah and Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up. We don't really know what he's asking, but in one sense, it's a little bit foolish because even the Lord says to Moses, the necessity of the Lord even covering Moses was no man can see me and live. And here's Philip. Show us the father. Maybe Philip has in mind, too, some theophanies that were in the Old Testament, whether it's the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. Maybe it's the angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham or the one that Isaiah actually saw which is foolish again because the one who was in all those theophanies who appeared was the very one sitting in front of him. Don't really know maybe what he was intending, what kind of a demonstration that he was wanting, but that's basically what he's saying, though. In light of your departure, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And you see a great disappointment on the part of Christ because while Christ is truly God... He is truly man, and there is a disappointment there. This disappointment, by the way, is not in contrast to God the Father and his emotion or his feeling. But there is, you see that in, in, in the words that Jesus says here. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? I've been with you over three years, and you still don't know me? And all the things that Jesus did, because, I mean, we've been through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going through the Gospel of John, we see a number of different things in the life of Christ. Some of the greatest manifestations of the divinity of Christ put on display that we can see and marvel at. Even with some of the experiences of the disciples, such as the calming of the storm, they understood that there was something different about him. Because in the calming of the storm, remember, Jesus is asleep, the disciples think they're going to die, and they go to Jesus, and they say, you know, Lord, we're perishing. Basically, are you going to do something? Because we're, we're ready to die here. They obviously didn't think he was going to do what he did, because he stands up. He says to the winds and the seas, peace, be still. And the passage tells us that everything went calm. The sea went calm, and the winds went calm. And yet it tells us then that the disciples were exceedingly fearful. They weren't fearful no longer at the storm, but the one who controlled the storm. That's why they say, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? This is the Jesus that can raise the dead after being dead four days. That was unheard of. That had never happened. This is the Jesus that any miracle that he ever did, any great sign or wonder that he ever did, he didn't do like the Old Testament prophets. He didn't have to pray and say, Lord, consume the sacrifice and show them who you are. Jesus says, I'm here, and he speaks the word. So there was a great difference in how Jesus operated here on the earth versus those that came before him, that he is showing his divinity. He is showing his majesty and glory as the only true and living God. And in light of all that, they still didn't understand. 
that everything that he was doing was manifesting the Father to them. And there's that disappointment on the part of Jesus from those that are closest to him to still not understand. What was the reasoning of their understanding? Well, we're not really told. If the disciples are so consumed beforehand about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, then most likely they're thinking in earthly terms. They're they're in earthly ways. They're only thinking of maybe Christ establishing the kingdom and how they're going to be within the kingdom. Not thinking of the work that has to be accomplished before him, the preparation as we talked about, that Christ needed to accomplish in order to allow them into the kingdom, which was his work of redemption. Maybe that's why they didn't see it, because they didn't understand his mission. But you see a disappointment on the part of of Jesus there. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? That that knowing is that that intimate knowledge. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And it goes back to that very word that he was using before. To comprehend him is to comprehend the Father. That is, that, that is why it is so vital, once again, to understand Jesus, to understand the Father. Everything showing him. The tone of his voice. It's because nothing that he did was ever in contrast to the Father. Everything that he did was revealing the Father. The tone in his voice, his attitude toward the, the righteous and the unrighteous, his reaction at the various events of his life and the events that have taken place throughout the pages of the Gospels. One writer says this, To see Jesus and comprehend his mind and heart, his character and his habits, is to comprehend God. God is always and only Christ-like, so that the more we know of Christ, the more we know of God. And again, you see Jesus explaining his unity with the Father. That unity of essence, the unity of substance, the unity of purpose, everything is, is, is in full agreement with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Again, they're not, there's no disunity there. Uh, there's no opposition there. You know, if, you, if we think sometimes, you know, we think of God, and perhaps we think of God as some kind of a, just a, a stoic being, that there's no emotion there, there's no, there's no feeling there, or whatever. Well, we quickly realize that that's not the case when we look to the life of Christ. He experienced joy, he experienced grief and disappointment, sadness, difficulty. Difficulty in his humanity as far as that goes, but... On the part of God the Father, it does show us that he is a God who has emotion. He's not stoic. That's why the scripture tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By indulging in the sin. You being those that Christ had, had, di- had died for. That Christ had purchased that the Holy Spirit is brought to, to faith and then to, to indulge in the sin is to grieve the Spirit of God. To experience joy and then joy in the Spirit of God. 
There's, there's emotions that, that we are privileged to, to experience that are grounded within the scripture that are prompted by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is a God of emotion, just as God the Father is. So everything demonstrated the glory and the majesty of the Father in Christ. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. So he's saying, again, affirming every word that he says is from the Father. Every action that he ever did is from the Father. His signs and his wonders, his works. These are all the Father. It's manifesting the Father. We have... a. This idea within the Christian faith that you have the God of the Old Testament that is just so, so mean, just so you know, judgmental, he's so wrathful. And then you have Jesus. Jesus who is gentle, lowly, merciful to sinners, gracious, loving. And it seems as if the two are put at odds. But we have to remember this, that the God of the Old Testament is the God who is incarnate that we're reading of. And as Bodhi Bauckham says, if you think about the wrath of Christ, read all the way to the right. Because there is more wrath and vengeance in the book of Revelation than anything under the Old Covenant. Why? Because they're the same. It's the same God. It's the same righteousness. It's the same holiness. It's the same goodness. All of that. Christ is the one manifesting the Father. Every word that he says, every action that he does. William Barclay says, Jesus is the revelation of God, and that revelation leaves the mind of men staggered and amazed into wonder, love, and praise. And again, when you think about the triune nature of God, it is indeed a great mystery. It is one that really baffles the mind. It is one that is a difficult thing to understand because when you're talking about the nature of God, you're talking about the infinite and the finite trying to understand the infinite. But the very things that the scripture affirms to us and the very things that Jesus is expressing to his disciples by what he's saying is that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-existent from all eternity they are one in essence, one in substance, the very thing that makes God, God. The Son has to the fullest. The Holy Spirit has to the fullest. The Father has to the fullest. And yet they make up one God. Three persons. The great mystery of the triune nature of God, that IU relationship that exists within the very being of God. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing mystery of how can that be I was sharing with the Sunday school this morning that Mortimer Adler, who came to Christ late in his life as a journalist or a writer of some sort, that he said that one of the things that led him to Christ was the doctrine of the Trinity because no human could have come up with this. And he's right. No human could have. There are things that we try to explain this, this unity of God and we tried a number of different ways to talk about the, the triune nature of God, and we say, well, 
God's like water and steam and, and ice. And we say that, well, he's like an egg. You know, you have the shell, you have the white, then you have the yolk. Or he's like an apple or he's like a tree. And we try to express the triune nature of God and all of them fail. And it actually leads us into more heresy. Because if we think of God in this way, then we're only going into that monadic view of God that is held by those that are of the Sabellian um, belief system that we know them today as the Jesus-only church. A monadic view of God. One singular being who puts on the face of a father, the Father, puts on the face of the Son, puts on the face of the Holy Spirit, yet he's the one singular being. That's what the analogy of the egg and the water and all of that lead us to. So those aren't good to use. The mystery of the Trinity is far more, uh, far more comprehensive than that. And the very thing that, the only thing that we really can do is to understand that the scripture affirms to us one God. Because we understand that even in Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That Hebrew word, echad, compound nature. Moses tells us from the very beginning that God is compound nature. The very same word used in Genesis when the Lord says, So shall a man leave his father and mother, cling unto his wife. The two shall become one flesh, one echad. He's telling us, even in Deuteronomy, that the very nature of God is compound nature in that same way. The scripture affirms that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there's only one God. A great mystery indeed, but one that, should, that we should marvel at rather than trying to come up with ways to explain it or come up with ways to, to rationalize it. Again, because when you do that, you either led into Sabellianism, you're led into Arianism, or Nestorianism, or any of these other big words of those that came within church history. What we need to understand is that Christ is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit. You have that unity of being, unity of purpose, not in function. Because only the Son is the one who became incarnate. Only the Holy Spirit is the one sent after the Son to fetch the bride. But there is that unity among the Godhead, a full agreement in everything. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ is the words of the Father. That's his, that's his whole point. And he goes on to explain this, to even, even say this. In light of all of that, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And as one writer said, one of the things that Jesus is saying there is that even a little bit of faith on the part of looking at the works is better than no faith. It's a pretty amazing statement. But to put those things in perspective, we have to understand that every work that Christ did, every sign that he did, every wonder that he did was demonstrating his divinity. It wasn't an end in itself. It was to authenticate who he claimed to be so that we would give attention to his words. His words are much more important than the works themselves. That's why when you had the, the transfiguration and you have... Peter, James, and John there, and Peter's like, do we need to make some tabernacles here? And what, what does he hear? He hears the Father say to him, this is my beloved Son, hear him. 
not watch him, not see what he's doing, hear him. Because it's the very word of God that is proceeding out of the mouth of the Son of God that is explaining the Father to the world. Just as it was beforehand, works always authenticated the messenger. They were never an end in themselves. They were never commonplace. When God gives new revelation, it was through a messenger, and he authenticated them with signs and wonders, just as he did the apostles. But the very thing that it always leads to is listening and paying attention and giving yourself over to the word of God. That's the most important thing, and that's what it is for us. That it's the word of God that is, that is, is the final authority. It's the word of God that expresses to us the very majesty of Christ himself. You see that even in, in some of the instances in the Old Testament. You, know, you have Elijah and you have the great wind. Then you have an earthquake. Then you have the fire. But God wasn't in any of them. He was in the low voice, the still small voice. The very revelation of God came through words. And that's why it's not seeking after sensory experiences that are not grounded in the scripture. But it's giving ourselves over to the word of God that the emotions that we feel are grounded in truth. We have spiritual experiences all the time. I hope you understand that. We do. Not the ones that the charismatics would emphasize because they like to see glory clouds and feathers coming out of the, the raptors or the ventilation system. They like to see a number of manifestations in this kind of a way. And that supposedly increases their faith. What increases our faith is our knowledge of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart and would, your heart will be enlightened to know the hope of his calling. He says to the Philippians and to the Colossians, very similar language, I pray that your love would abound more and more in real knowledge. Because it's knowledge that comes to the mind, that flows to the heart, and engages the will. True knowledge of God. And you have those, those emotions and those, uh, those spiritual experiences that are grounded in truth. You have them all the time. Maybe you don't think of it. Every time that you're convicted over something that you've done when you're reading through Scripture and you're like, hmm, yep, I did that. Lord, forgive me for that. Or based on your knowledge of Scripture, when you, when you do something out in your workplace or you say something that you shouldn't or you perform an action that you shouldn't, Immediately, you're aware of the guilt that has come upon you. That in itself is a spiritual experience because that's the Spirit of God who dwells within you, convicting your heart. Whenever you're reading through the Scripture or you're in a study with, with others and, and you go over a passage of Scripture and you come to understand it to, to an even greater extent and you're like, wow, that is so amazing, that is awesome. And you have this joy that comes in your heart. That's a spiritual experience because the Spirit of God has taken that passage and has illuminated that passage in your heart that you can gain a greater understanding. That's a spiritual experience. When you have a peace that surpasses all comprehension in times in which you should be the most anxious and you can't explain why you have a peace, that's the Holy Spirit of God. 
you have spiritual experiences all the time. And those experiences are based and grounded in the truth of God. Those are the things that we need to be seeking after. And understand this too, that your knowledge of God is important not only for you, but also important in, in the sense of your overall relationship to the Lord. You can't worship the one you don't know. You can't praise the one that you don't know. And is there a disappointment on the part of the Lord when we fail to understand him because maybe of our lack of study or whatever? Yes, there is. Because you see a disappointment on the part of Christ here. Because even those closest to him didn't know him. Our whole lives are based on our knowledge of God. The way that we ought to be in, in life is based on our knowledge of God. The very words that we should be speaking is based on our knowledge of God. And the great joy that we have of telling others that God has truly manifested himself in his son. And that there is no guessing here. Every other world religion that you come to, there's always a guessing of, well, what is pleasing to this God? Or what is this God like? And as we were talking about again in Sunday school, that every other God of every other belief system is always after the liking of man. They're always as immoral as man. They are, they're always as finite as man. They're created in the image of man. You have to guess then, well, what is pleasing to them? That's not so with the Christian faith. That is not so with the Christian faith. God has truly manifested himself in a way that we can understand him and to know what is pleasing to him. If we want to live a life pleasing to God, know what he says. How does God want you to be towards your family or towards those in your workplace? Know what he says. Do you desire to live a life delighting in the Lord? Know what he says. Do you desire that peace, joy, etc., etc.? Know what he says. And your lack of knowing is your own responsibility. No one else's. It is the responsibility of all believers to seek the scripture and to know the God whom they serve. That's where your relationship is. That's where your joy is. Spending time with the Lord, sometimes alone, in prayer, in your own study time, is some of the times in which you can, you can gather even more so of, of the great majesty and the splendor of God. Seek him. Seek him through the scripture. Experience him. Experience him through your knowledge of the scripture. If that experience is not finding a reference point here, it's not of God. But there are many to have. There's great joy in knowing God and experiencing God. We don't like to say that word because we don't want to end up like charismatic. But experiencing God is also a very important part of the Christian life. But it's through truth, not through error, not through imagination. So seek him all the more through the pages of his word. Let's look to Christ for our true knowledge of God. Because that's where we come to understand him even more, the Father. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for your word. Your word that is inspired by you, is God-breathed. Your word tells us that 
profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Father, thank you that you have truly revealed yourself through your son and the life of your son is recorded for us through these pages. Thank you for the knowledge that you have granted not only through the life of your son but through the other authors of scripture. Thank you for this great privilege of knowing you. Let us not take that lightly for your word tells us that eternal life is defined as knowing you. Jesus says that they may know you, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is how you define eternal life for this great privilege of knowing you. You tell us that if any man boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows me. Father, thank you that you have truly revealed yourself that we can know you and that you have brought us to life through the Spirit of God that we can receive and accept the things of the Spirit of God to know you. Oh, Father, be glorified in us. Teach us even more how we ought to live in light of being always in the presence of God. Help us to grow. Help us to delight in you more. Help us to worship you even more, to praise you even more, to give you thanks as we always should. Father, fill us with your with your word by the spirit of God and may the spirit of God apply those things to our hearts stir those things within our hearts that we would manifest them in our lives to you be the praise the glory and the honor in Jesus name we pray and all God's children said